place where our hope resides is revealed in our moments of waiting. When we come to Christ as our Savior in simple, childlike faith, we will find salvation rest. We have a greater high priest. We only need Jesus to be our advocate. It's not unusual for someone to ask us in the course of a typical day, how are you doing? How's it going? How are you? And our standard answer is often something positive, like, great. I'm doing great. Things are going great. But since we've been living in the book of Hebrews these past eight weeks, I'm thinking about changing my answer. Somebody asks me, how are you? I'm going to start saying, greater. Because we're learning from week to week that Jesus is greater and that the life lived out day by day in Jesus is greater. We learn from chapter 1, he is greater than angels. From chapter 2, he is greater than death. From chapter 3, he is greater than Moses. From chapter 4, he provides a greater rest. From chapter 5, he is a greater high priest. Chapter 6... He is a greater Savior. Last weekend, chapter 7, he provides a greater hope. And today, from chapter 8, we will discover he provides greater promises. On June the 13th, 1995, the Chicago Tribune carried a true story of Russell Edward Herman, who died leaving a wild and crazy will. He promised trillions of dollars he didn't have to thousands of people he had never met. Now, he did not enrich any of the vast number of beneficiaries listed in his will, but he did furnish a lot of excited conversations across southern Illinois. He bequeathed a staggering $2.4 billion to the tiny town of Cave-In Rock, and the same amount. $2.4 billion to East St. Louis. And then there was $6 trillion for the Federal Reserve to pay off the national debt. Don't we wish that $6 trillion would do it today? He provided $6 trillion to get the U.S. Treasury back on track. And the generosity of, Herman, of the Herman Will is astounding, particularly in light of the fact that apparently... The only thing of any value that he had when he died at age 67 was an 11-year-old 1983 Oldsmobile Toronado. So lacking any monetary assets and having absolutely no legal standing, his last will and testament probably resulted in little more than some amusing gossip in area coffee shops. Russell Edward Herman. <laughs> he might have had good intentions, but he lacked the resources to make the promises in his will a reality. And in stark contrast to that is the will of God. Because he not only has made what the Apostle Peter calls great and precious promises. Patrick read that text for us a little earlier in the service. He has the ability to follow through 
on every single one of them. So just how many of these great and precious promises are there in the Bible anyhow? A hundred? Maybe a thousand? How about 10,000? Well, Dr. Reginald Dunlap, who has documented them, says there are approximately 30,000 promises in the Bible. And I want you to look at these verses that declare that God is faithful to keep his promises. In Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? That's a rhetorical question. Implied answer, no, he does not speak and then not act. Does he promise and not fulfill? Rhetorical question. Implied answer, no. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. And then in Joshua 23, 14, You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises of the Lord your God, uh, that the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise, every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. 1 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient, patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And finally, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So, would you believe me today if I told you that you have been named as a beneficiary in the will of God? Would you believe me if I told you that you're on the receiving end of an incredible bequest? You're on the receiving end of greater promises than a few measly trillion dollars from a benefactor who is 100% trustworthy, who has never failed to keep a promise. We're in Hebrews chapter 8 this weekend, and in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, here's what we read. But the ministry, the high priestly ministry of Jesus, you remember there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. He is our one and only high priest. The high priestly ministry of Jesus that he has received is as superior to theirs, talking about the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament high priest. Jesus has received a ministry, high priestly ministry, that is as superior to theirs as the new covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it, referring to the new covenant, is founded on, here it is, better promises, greater promises. The key to understanding chapter 8 of Hebrews is to understand the meaning of the word covenant. Patrick introduced it to you last week. Don't be put off by this word. It should be a very familiar word because marriage is a covenant. It is a mutual coming together, a mutual agreement, two people making promises to each other. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Adoption, if you've ever adopted a child, it involves a covenant, the making of promises. Buying a house, buying a car, taking out a student loan involves making promises, establishing a covenant. 
The Bible is actually divided into two covenants. We call them the Old Testament and the New Testament. But we could also call them the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament tells about the conditional covenant between God and Israel. God promised to bless Israel if they would love and obey Him. And the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is based on keeping God's law. The New Testament introduces an unconditional covenant between God and the whole world. And it's made possible by the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for all men. And it's based not on keeping the law. It's based on receiving God's grace. And it's a superior covenant that offers greater promises And I want you to learn this morning some things about this covenant, this relationship between you and your Creator, you and your Heavenly Father. I want you to see, first of all, this morning, it is an inner inner covenant. In Hebrews chapter 10, the first part of, or chapter 8, the first part of verse 10, here's what it says. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. It's an inner covenant. The old covenant was a set of laws that were engraved in stone. The new covenant is written in our minds, in our hearts. And because of the new covenant, we don't have to keep a long list of laws that we can't even remember, let alone keep. You know, when people want to become citizens of the United States, they have to pass a test. There's something like a hundred questions on this test, and they cover information about the history and the laws of our nation. Now, imagine what it would be like if you could go to a free clinic. You want to be a citizen of the United States. You go to a free clinic, and they will give you a physical shot, and it contains all the answers to all the questions about the history and the laws of the country. Everything you need would be injected into your head and heart. No need to study. No need to pass a test. That's what God has promised to do for you. He will inject His own Spirit into you. And His Holy Spirit will lead you into truth and will show you God's will by speaking to your conscience. And the Holy Spirit lives in you, influences your mind, changes you from the inside out conforms you over time to the likeness of Jesus. Listen, inner transformation. It's infinitely better than keeping religious rules and regulations. But some people today still have the idea that rituals, rituals can make them holy. But a person can go through holy routines and still have an unrepentant heart It's possible to come into the presence of the Lord in worship assemblies and have secret sin in your life. I'm not naive. I know there may be people present in this worship assembly right now who are embezzling funds from their employer. Maybe someone in this worship service this morning who's involved in sexting. Maybe someone here this morning who is a closet alcoholic someone who's addicted to prescription drugs, maybe a husband who is emotionally and physically abusing his wife, a wife who is in a secret, adulterous relationship. I remember when a a time when a man wanted to be baptized in our 
baptistry so he could get a baptismal certificate. So he could show that to a priest. He wanted to marry a Catholic girl. He didn't understand baptism. He saw it as an outward ritual. But a baptismal certificate does not provide the interchange of heart that humility and repentance and a surrendered life produce. And God wants our hearts. He does not want outward conformity. He does not want outward capitulation. He does not want outward obedience. Just look at this indictment of outward religion with no inner conviction or no inner devotion. Matthew 15, 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God is interested in your heart. Not religious ritual, not form. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is an inner covenant. It has to do with letting him write his words, his law in your mind and on your heart. Now look at the back half of this same verse in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, and we find out that the greater covenant of Jesus is also a relational covenant. It's an inner covenant, but it's also a relational covenant, and you see that in the latter part of verse 10, where God says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Can you capture the wonder of this? God has made us his own people. We're we're citizens of an eternal heavenly kingdom. But we're not just arm's length citizens. We're children. Children of the king. We have access to the throne room. We've been adopted. We've been chosen. And if you're here this morning and you're a good father, you are an involved father here today, just know this, that the way you feel about your children is the way your heavenly father feels about you. I seldom watch golf on television. To me, it's kind of like watching HGTV. Just puts me right to sleep in the middle of a day. But I do remember a scene. I do remember a scene that unfolded in 2004 when left-handed golfer Phil Mickelson won the master's degree. The first thing he did when he got the master's trophy and he put on the master's green jacket, the first thing he did, he reached down and scooped up his little girl in his arms and he held up the winning trophy with a big smile as his little girl planted a sweet kiss on his cheek. And I felt emotion well up in me. Watching professional golf, having emotion well up in you. And then it hit me. The reason was it pictured for me the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you and me. He takes great joy in us, his children. He wants to hold us up as his trophy. He wants to hold us up and show the watching world what he can do with a surrendered life. Here it is in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. That's the old covenant. That's the Old Testament. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. That's the new covenant. Now, we call him Abba, Father. 
What else do we find out about this New Testament of greater promise? Well, it, it is an inner covenant. It is a relational covenant. It's also an inclusive covenant. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 8, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. From the least of them to the greatest. Under the old covenant, the Jewish people would constantly go to the rabbis to get their interpretation of the law. Rabbis were the experts. They knew it all. The people were dependent on their constant input. And some Christians today look to priests. They look to pastors. They look to professors. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. But God did not want to create an elite class of a few super believers for everyone else to follow. God wants us all to know him from the least to the greatest. And under this new covenant, there are no clergy-laity distinction because we're all priests. We all have access to the truth of God. We all can counsel with the Lord. Here it is in a single statement. Here it is in a statement. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about it. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That's all of us under the New Testament, the New Covenant. A holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we no longer need, as we've learned, a human mediator to go before God in our behalf because the New Testament of greater promises says that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come boldly into the presence of God. Hebrews 4, 16, let us all then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we all, may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, because of the sin in each of our lives, none of us deserves the honor of being adopted by God. We don't deserve the honor of being blessed with access to Him through our prayers. On our own merit, none of us could experience the, the peace and joy of this inner, relational, all-inclusive covenant. None of us could be recipients of his great and precious promises, but because of Jesus, all of us, all of us can be partakers in the divine nature. And it is because of this, the most astounding promise bequeathed to us in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. It is a greater testament, a greater covenant, because it is an eternal covenant. Verse 12 of Hebrews 8, where I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is a declaration of the creator God in heaven. Can you take it in? Can you take it in today? Forgiveness. It's the centerpiece of the new covenant, the New Testament. That's the greatest of all promises. And it was a gift given by Jesus to the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. This is my favorite scripture verse. People ask me sometimes, what's your favorite verse of scripture? Here it is, Matthew 9, 2. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. 
It was a gift offered by Jesus with his dying breath in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The old covenant was never intended to last forever. The purpose of it was to demonstrate to the entire world, to all people in time and space and in every generation, that we human beings cannot make ourselves holy as God is holy. And we cannot enter into the presence of a holy God on our own. And we cannot save ourselves from the penalty of sin by our own efforts to be righteous. And we don't have it in us to do enough to deserve heaven. The Old Testament should convince us of these facts. But now the law is obsolete. It served its purpose. It has been replaced. It demonstrated to us our need for a Savior. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament begins by introducing that Savior. And so we're under an eternal covenant of God's grace. And here's the period on the sentence. Verse 13 of Hebrews 8, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Time and time again, the Jewish people failed to obey God's law, and they suffered the consequences of their disobedience and over and over again they ignored God's commands over and over again they turned away and worshipped other gods they grumbled and complained their hearts were often far from God even as they worshipped him with their lips their obedience was spotty at best in case there's any doubt in your mind we're not all that much different than they except for this For Jesus' sake, and because of his perfect sacrifice for your sins and mine on the cross, God's greater promise, God's greatest promise is to forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. We need only to believe in Jesus and to receive Jesus. And to trust Jesus and surrender to Jesus and imperfectly live a life that honors Jesus, knowing that his covenant, his testament, his will is eternal. And God always keeps his promises. Will you pray with me? Father God, when we review the scope of history from creation in Genesis to the consummation of all things in the book of Revelation, we marvel, Lord, at your wisdom, your patience, the genius of your plan to demonstrate to us through the ages our imperfection, our need for a Savior, and then to send Jesus, your Son, our Savior, into this world to reveal your heart, to extend your grace. 
And Father, we pray that not a person in this assembly today will miss it. And that they will rivet their attention on Jesus, the one who makes the greater promise, the greater promises available to us if we know him and love him and serve him all our days. In his name we pray. Amen. I need to transition this morning from the message on Hebrews chapter 8 to a letter that I want to read to you, uh, my church. I want to begin with the words of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 7. You'll recognize it. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. And this morning is one of those times when I need to speak. But to be honest with you, it has a little bit of a bittersweet feeling for me to announce that after careful thought and prayerful consideration, Kayleen and I have decided it is time for me to retire as senior pastor of Crossroads. When I was called to serve at Crossroads in 2007, the elders and I were aware that there were a couple of unique facts to our partnership. First of all, I was coming from a long tenure as president of a Christian college. So how would my spiritual leadership transfer from the context of a college community to a local church family? Secondly, I was 59 years old at the time, so I knew from the start that I would need to evaluate my ministry after a decade or so of service. Well, friends, this March the 27th, Easter at the Ford Center, will be our 10th Easter with you. And from our standpoint, this time has passed all too quickly. For the last three years, I've had in the back of my mind a plan forming that would ensure that when it came time for me to hand off the shepherd's staff of pastoral leadership here at Crossroads, that it would be a seamless, be a momentum-producing, and most of all, it would be a God-honoring transition. A little over a year ago, I shared my thoughts with the elders about what I thought this next season of my life would look like and my desire to pursue God's best to ensure the health and growth of Crossroads into the future. And it's important for you to know that I initiated the, the succession process that we, your leaders, have been in a very united way, cooperatively pursuing. From the beginning, it has been my desire to finish well and to step away from senior leadership when the time was right, and by God's grace, we have come to that time. 
There's growing excitement among our elders and our leadership team, our pastors and our staff about what is ahead with the expansion of our missionary partnerships among the unreached people groups in our world and our multi-site outreach in the tri-state area and our campus and facility expansion. Clearly God is at work among us and he's leading crossroads into a bright future and I deeply desire to see this church thrive in the years ahead and for this next season to be especially vital. Kayleen and I will continue faithfully serving God's purpose through his church, although I will no longer serve as a senior leader. I have done this consistently for almost 50 years. And remember, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Presently, we do not have a definite kingdom assignment, but we know that as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.22, as long as I am alive, there is good work for me to do. Now, you should know that this transition will happen gradually and strategically over the next three to four months, with my final weekend being May 21st and 22nd, as I move from being a pastor in charge to being pastor at large. <laughs> Kayleen and I uh, are grateful. Thank you so much. Kayleen and I are grateful beyond words for the genuine love and the practical kindness and the deep respect you've shown to us and the leadership that you've entrusted to us through the years. I have said it to our leaders and I want to say it to all of you today. It will be harder for us to say goodbye to you after nearly 10 years than it was to say goodbye at the Bible College after 34 years. And it's because of the special ties that bind a shepherd to his flock, a pastor teacher to his church. So we humbly thank you for granting us the privilege of serving you and serving Jesus with you. We love you all. At Crossroads, we'll always have a very special place in our hearts. And I want to give opportunity for the chairman of our elders, Paul Special, to share a second announcement with you. Thank you, brother. I'm Paul Special, and as chairman of the elders, I'm here to formally receive Ken's retirement offering. Allow me first to simply acknowledge, on behalf of all of us, the staff, the elders, the entire Crossroads body, that we respect the prayerful consideration that Ken and Kayleen have made in reaching their decision to retire. Furthermore, we completely honor that decision. 
reaching this planned retirement milestone in a God-honoring fashion after running a gallant race is a remarkable achievement in and of itself. Secondly, we want to acknowledge the faithful service of Ken Eidelman as our senior pastor. We certainly have all benefited from the investment that he has made, his, his investment into our lives, his investment into our body, and into our community. We have all profited from the steady and confident leadership of this giant in the faith. Ken was God's chosen man to bring stability to Crossroads at a time when our leadership was in transition. He led us to a deeper walk with the Lord as individuals and corporately through the preaching and teaching from God's word. Over the past decade, with Ken as our shepherd, our body has been richly blessed. We're thankful to God and just humbly appreciative in a few months, we'll all have the opportunity to formally celebrate with Ken and Kayleen and to demonstrate this appreciation in a fitting and most well-deserved fashion. Drawing from Ken's reference to the passage in Ecclesiastes 3, this is indeed a time to cheer and a time to embrace. Now, if you know anything about Ken, you know that he would not announce his retirement until there was a thoughtful and detailed plan in place for crossroads going forward. As a member of the elders, Ken himself has been part of the succession planning. Together, we've been working on the plan for nearly three years. The elders have spent much time in prayer and fasting as we considered the timing of and the person to be called as Ken's successor. Ken has been providing developmental and mentoring input to the candidate during this process. At the same time, all the elders have been thoroughly investigating, studying, interviewing, and mentoring, and largely investing in the candidate that we want to put forward to you today. This candidate has been found to be worthy of the call. When one considers his faith heritage, his dynamic home church, his exemplary marriage and nuclear family, his collaborative approach to leadership, and his strong sense of God's calling on his life, the elders are united in our conviction of God's leading. In two weeks' time, with our congregational vote, you'll all have the opportunity to affirm the elders' unanimous recommendation for Ken's successor. And so it is, with great pleasure and anticipation of God's blessing, that we call the future lead pastor of Crossroads Christian Church in the person of Patrick Garcia. Patrick, would you join us, please? Be seated. 
thank you so much. You know, this has been quite a journey uh, for Savannah and me in this process when the elders began engaging me in this discussion, and we have prayed and fasted and uh, sought counsel over this decision, and so to say the least, uh, we are honored and humbled yet excited about the possibility of serving our church uh, in this role. Um, you know, the foundation that, that Ken has laid here for the past decade or so gives me the confidence to know that our best days as a church uh, are still before us. Now, filling Ken's shoes won't be easy. It won't even be possible. Uh, so just take those shoes with you, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Now, if you know Ken, you know that he has always balanced confidence with humility, and you may not know this, but one of the primary reasons why uh, we decided to uproot our family from a church that we loved and we were serving in down in Dallas, Texas, uh, was because I just couldn't get, uh, I I just was so excited about the opportunity to learn about preaching and leadership and pastoring Uh, from Ken Eidelman, and I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt that the same man who's up here on stage is the same man behind closed doors in meetings and and, and at his home. I mean, he has always modeled integrity, and I think the best way to describe Ken is that he's a man who's not impressed with himself, and uh, that is really unique and really special, and we have been so blessed to have a leader and pastor in him uh, the past 10 years or so. And so know that his imprint will continue to be upon our church as we move forward in reaching more people uh, with the gospel. And so Lord willing, uh, I am looking forward uh, to serving with you guys in in the years ahead. All right, let's pray. God, I know that a lot of us in here right now are just experiencing a mix of emotions from shock to sadness to maybe angst. And yet, God, would you just remind us all that nothing's going to change because the message that this church has been built upon since 1967 will never change. Our methods may be timely, but our message is timeless. And Jesus, it was you in Matthew 16 that promised that, that you would build your church. And yet, we look over the past 2,000 years of church history and we see that you've always used available men and women and to accomplish your purpose, to advance your mission in this world. And God, over 10 years here at Crossroads, you have done just that through Ken and Kayleen. I can't think of a more faithful, loyal couple who seeks to bring people to you and serve people in brokenness. And God, you tell us in your word that those who are deserving of honor should be honored and God, again, I can't think of another couple that is more deserving of that. They have truly been a gift to us, to this church for 10 years. And so, Lord, for the next three or four months, help us to just honor them the way that they deserve to be honored. God, pour your favor upon them. Continue to bless them. And, Lord, I'm excited personally to see how you're going to continue using them in this next chapter of their life. I know that Uh, Ken is just going to transition to another ministry, more work for your kingdom. And so God, thank you for it's in Christ's name that we pray and gather this morning. Amen.